What if we invested profit back into businesses instead of extracting it? Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we explore how circular, regenerative and fair solutions are better for people, planet and prosperity. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll hear from entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our monthly edition of Circular Insights. Welcome to episode 86. Thank you, as always, for listening and for the encouraging comments you're sending. Today, we're talking about a different way of thinking for how business fits into our society and economy. Jennifer Hinton is a systems researcher and activist in the field of sustainable economy. Her work focuses on how societies relate to profit and how that relationship affects global sustainability challenges. Jennifer's relationship to profit theory uses systems thinking and institutional economics to explain how key aspects of business and markets drive social and ecological outcomes for sustainability. Jennifer started developing this theory in the book How on Earth, which outlines a conceptual model of a not-for-profit market economy, the not-for-profit world model. She holds a double PhD in economics and sustainability science. As an activist, she collaborates with civil society organisations, businesses and policymakers to transform the economy so that it can work for everyone within the ecological limits of our planet. Jennifer is a researcher at Lund University and a senior research fellow at the Schumacher Institute. Let's meet Jennifer and I'll catch up with you afterwards with what I took away from our conversation. Jennifer, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast and thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much for having me, Catherine. So we've been talking about this this episode and sharing um, documents and research and so on for quite a while. But maybe we could start with the big question. What is post-growth and why is this idea gaining traction all around the world? Yes, it's a great question. Um, so post-growth, uh, both in scholarship and activism, is basically the idea that we need to reorganize our economies um, so that they can function without constantly growing. And the idea there is that you know all economic activity has some sort of environmental impact through resource use, energy use, um, you know, creating pollution and emissions to some extent. And so uh, given the fact that we are in such a dangerous situation right now with the climate crisis, with biodiversity loss and a whole host of other environmental problems globally, um, we need to, you know, reel in our economic activity globally. And so this means some communities that are currently consuming more than they need will need to uh, shrink and, and consume less than they are now. And other communities that aren't getting as much as they need um, will will 
need to consume more, but overall we need to shrink the, the global economy. Mm. Um, and, and post growth is just trying to explore, okay, how can we reorganize our economies so that they don't require and drive constant growth? And I think it's it's catching on so much right now um, because these these problems, the environmental problems and the inequality problems created by the growth-based economy are becoming more and more evident and they're making more and more people um, suffer and pushing them out of their comfort zones. So we're seeing a real sort of awakening to the fact that we need to move beyond the growth-based economy. Mm, yeah, and certainly in the research I'm doing for my next book, I'm seeing that emerging particularly strongly with the younger generations um, mm. who are, you know, and they're not so attached to the idea of owning things and um, they want to work for companies that have a deeper purpose. They want to buy from companies mm. that share their values and so on. So there's lots of very encouraging trends, I think, around that. Okay, mm-hmm. so... so um, and post-growth might put some people off, and I think we'll we'll talk later about how the circular economy can enable that. So we're not necessarily talking about going back to lifestyles of the 1920s and, and, and so on. We're not talking about, um, you know, sort of hair shirt type philosophy, are we? We're talking about having a different approach to the way that products and services work following mm. circular economy principles and and hopefully we'll have a chance to come back to that but your particular theory is something um, slightly different a different sort of um uh take if you like on on post growth or a, or a more refined way of thinking about it and your you've called your theory relationship to profit so could you explain how that relates to pro- post growth yeah, sure. So um, the theory, the relationship to profit theory, uh, offers an explanation for how the profit-driven economy, or what I call the for-profit economy, um, systemat- systematically drives environmental and social problems, um, and why decades of concerted efforts to make the for-profit economy sustainable have so far failed fairly miserably. Um, And then the theory also offers a way out of this conundrum by exploring the possibility of not-for-profit economies. So organizing our market economy, um, but in a not-for-profit way with uh, using not-for-profit business structures, um, which already exist. And how that kind of economy would actually allow for much better social and ecological outcomes. Um, including allowing for a non-growing or shrinking economy, whereas the for-profit type of economy, because you're constantly seeking more and more profit for investors, you have to constantly sell more and more stuff to make profit, um, and so it's a growth-based economy. Mm. And I guess my take on that is that it's it's kind of a consumption-based growth economy. So, and and I think we've gradually come to see that as the only way forward but when we think about things from a circular economy perspective it we're breaking that link between consuming more resources and having the better standards of living that everybody aspires to because we know that we want to bring people in um, less well-off countries up to the standards of living that you know they they 
deserve and, and are entitled to. Mm. So I guess, and, and just to unpack the um, the not-for-profit part of it a bit more, because I think it is easy for people to get confused to think that not-for-profit means profits are a bad thing. And if I, uh, the way I understand it from um, reading some of a little bit of your work, is that we're talking about profits that can be reinvested in the business, perhaps for you know updated facilities and equipment. And even if we think about moving towards a circular economy model, it might need to be investing in cash flow buffers if you're going to switch from selling products to leasing products. Then most companies would feel more comfortable having their own profits to use for that instead of having to borrow to fund that cash flow from a from a bank or whatever. So we're not saying profits per se are a bad thing. What we're saying is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the purpose of the business should not be to keep growing its profits so that they can be distributed to make shareholders and you know board members and so on um, ever richer the point should be to have a purpose that goes beyond profit a purpose that's doing better things for society and for our planet am i am i understanding that correctly that was exactly right exactly right it was an excellent little uh, summary of what it is so it's exactly what you said profit is neither good nor bad in itself it's how the profit is used how it's generated and um why it's generated and then how it's used mm. and so you know not-for-profit businesses have a core social benefit mission which can include environmental benefit um and all of the profit is either reinvested back in making you know the business a solid business like you say um, including having a cash flow buffer and or uh, reinvested in social benefit for a larger community, which can include, you know, helping kids with learning disabilities. There's a whole wide range, protecting forests, um, whatever it is. So rather than making a handful of business, private business owners and investors richer, it goes into making the community better off. Mm. So, and I'm sh I'm sure you've got lots of examples to share. Is there a legal structure for this, for these kind of businesses? What what umbrella do they sit under, and is that a a sort of globally standard legal structure, or is it different in every country? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. So basically, the and part of the reason I was attracted to the for-profit, not-for-profit distinction is because it is legally binding. This is a legal category of uh, organizations and businesses. Um, and so it's more like what I said, a category where you can find a, a whole range of incorporation structures, so more specific incorporation structures. So for instance, you mentioned a community interest company. Um, so in the UK, the community interest company limited by guarantee is not for profit. So they, all of their profits have to go back into social benefit. Um, Whereas the community interest company uh, limited by shares actually has private shares and can distribute up to 30% of their profit to private investors. So that's a case where a social enterprise model has taken both a not-for-profit and a for-profit form, two different forms. Um, but this distinction between for-profit and not-for-profit comes down to not-for-profits have a social benefit 
uh, mission, and all of the profit legally has to go back into serving that either through keeping the business going or through uh, directly investing in social benefit. Um, and so they're not allowed to, to distribute any profit to private individuals. And that distinction holds around the world. Um, so it's a really handy distinction in, in that sense, because we can look at uh, companies and markets around the world through this lens and have a better understanding of whether they're really set up to um, enrich private investors and they're part of the sort of system-wide dynamics that come with that kind of way of organizing the economy, or if they're um, set up to really, legal, in a legally binding way, serve the larger community. I'm I'm curious to know what sparked your interest in this to begin with. Where where did that all come from? Yeah, I mean, so it's, uh, it's a long story, but I'll wrap it up into a nutshell. <laughs> so, in a nutshell, um, I found myself teaching English in China after I finished my bachelor's program in, in international relations. And I had been hearing about this miracle of Chinese developments, you know, that double digit growth had been uh, bringing people out of poverty and solving environmental problems. So I was excited to see it when I got there. But what I saw instead was um, all of the factories in the countryside where I was teaching English were polluting the water, polluting the air, killing off the ecosystems, making the people sick. At the same time, these strong community and family ties that had existed in this rural village where I was living um, were being ripped apart because all of the working age people were encouraged to leave the village, go to the cities, find jobs, and they were leaving their kids behind in the village to be raised by grandparents. So. Um, I met small children that had never even met their parents because they were working in the city far away and they weren't able to come home. Yeah, so, you know, this just made me rethink everything that I had been taught about development and progress about, okay, so this is double digit economic growth, but is this progress? And this is the kind of development we want where people and ecosystems are getting sick and families and communities are getting ripped apart. Um, and then, you know, fast forward, I, I did a master's in, in sustainability in, in Sweden. Um, and I wrote my thesis actually on the circular economy. And, uh, you know, it was more of a learning experience than a solid piece of research that came out of that. But it was really uh, had me start thinking more critically about, you know, the circular economy kept being framed in terms of the circularity can allow us to have green growth and sustainable profits. And so it was still like, uh, sustainability is a means to growing the economy. It's a means to having more profit. And this always rubbed me wrong. And then I, um, I thought, you know, as circular as we can get the economy, and it will never be perfectly circular due to the laws of thermodynamics, right? Um, so if we can make it as circular as possible, but we keep trying to grow it, it's still going to require more inputs more resources more energy and it's going to keep creating more and more emissions as we grow it um so i started really rethinking does the economy need to grow and i bumped into tim jackson's book uh prosperity without growth and, and it really convinced me that no this is just a fiction in our heads that we're convinced the economy has to grow there's no natural law here we just have to think creatively about how to organize the economy so that it, it doesn't constantly drive growth and environmental crises Mm. Yeah, and um, I've just read Tim Jackson's latest book, Post Growth, and there's some really interesting 
takes on why a post-growth society is is a better way for us all to live and also some very interesting historical insights into how we've got to this stage and why why we're kind of manipulated into thinking that this is the only the only way um, yeah. and some you know some interesting perspectives on on marketing in particular mm. so okay so in terms of you know how how you talked about the three stages so how can this work at, at scale and have you got any examples of of businesses that are sort of doing large large scale things um to you know that that can help persuade people that this this is a viable way forward yeah so i think that this question of scale is a really interesting one because it almost ties directly into a theory of change. Like how how can this transition, you know, go back, going back to that second phase of how can we transition from here to there? Um, I think a lot of us assume that we need to uh, get the largest corporations on board or we need to make not-for-profit businesses and circular businesses so big that they outcompete the global incumbents. Um, but I think then back about the principles of sustainability and how we really need to draw down our economic activity. We need to relocalize our economic activity. And I think then we can see the transition in a quite different light. So um, when I when you ask, can this work at scale? I think it can work at scale. But for me, that means uh, a lot of local not-for-profit markets connecting with each other, um, but serving local community needs and using all of their surplus. So, you know, they might redistribute the surplus from some global north communities to global south communities in that sort of way. But I find this to be a much more um, useful way of thinking about it, sort of networked, smaller local community economies rather than having these large global incumbents, because I think that's part of the problem. Um, and so, but there are, that said, there are some larger not-for-profit companies. So BRAC is a company based in Bangladesh um, that started in order, their main purpose was to make healthcare and education available to rural Bangladeshis. Um, and to serve that mission, they started a bunch of enterprises. So they have a dairy, um, they have retail shops that sell handmade products that are made by the rural Bangladeshis and all kinds of uh, banking services. And so all of the, the surplus goes back to helping Bangladeshis. And that model has worked so well that it's now expanded to several other countries. So I think there might be one in Kenya and Pakistan. And this is, so BRAC is actually quite large. Um, so that there is an example of how that can work as well. But those local branches are really embedded in their local communities. So mm, That's interesting. And that reminds me of a, another book I've um, just finished by Craig Johnson and Ken Webster, who both used to work for the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, mm -hmm. and whose book, Sense and Sustainability, was the first book I read about the circular economy that kind of switched the light bulb on for, for me back in back in 2010. So their latest book is called ABC plus D. And one of, so they're talking about local food systems, they're talking about much more democratic systems and, and principles of regeneration and so on. And one of the things they 
mention a few times is the need to think about scaling out rather than scaling up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems to fit into what you were talking about with BRAC, that first of all, they've scaled out into other services to help their customers and probably their employees. And then now they're scaling the model out to different parts of the world. So, yeah, that's that's useful. I'll put a link to that in the in the show notes. So um, I think we've we've perhaps covered the next question I had, which is, what would you say to people who are sceptical about this? But is there any anything you want to add to our um, points earlier? Yeah, I mean, I can because there are, you know, I've been going around and talking about this for nearly 10 years now. So I've, I feel like I've bumped up against all kinds of different skepticism. Although that said, I have to say, most people tend to latch onto this idea quite easily. It, it makes a lot of sense to them. So um, it depends on what the source of skepticism is. So one of the sources of skepticism is that, you know, people say, okay, this is such a common sense way to organize the economy. You know, of course, the economy should be organized to meet social needs and not to make investors rich. That just makes sense. Um, but, you know, then their skepticism comes from why hasn't it already happened if it's so common sense? And what's uh, is it actually realistic? Can it happen? Um, and my sort of uh, response to that is that, you know, I even though it feels really perhaps utopian and unrealistic from where we sit right now, um, I think it's much more realistic than than imagining a sustainable for-profit economy, an economy that is, you know, set up to make a small handful of investors rich, and somehow magically that trickles down and works out for people and planet as well. So that's the more uh, utopian uh, imagination, uh, imaginary kind of thinking uh, than the not-for-profit economy. I think. Um, And then I can quickly just also mention a couple of other sources of skepticism that I often bump into, um, which your listeners might also have in their minds right now, is, you know, if you take away the the profit motive, if you take the profit motive out as the engine of economic activity, then won't you lose innovation and efficiency? Because that's one of the core ideas about the the capitalist for-profit economy, right? Um, So profit motive drives efficiency and innovation. But I like to just point out that this is a large myth, (laughs) you know, and and, uh, I find one of the things I do in my talks is is really bust this myth. Um, You know, innovation, if you think about the longer term, large scale human innovations that have happened, um, the most important innovations, if you think all the way back to like the invention of, Uh, bridges and wheels and then we go further you know bicycles um, the earliest vaccines um, computers and the internet so this whole breadth of human innovation all of that was innovated out of human creativity and the desire to solve social problems not to make the innovators rich Mm. Um, and then actually the for the for-profit economy the profit motive uh, incentivizes harmful innovation in a lot of ways you know it's it's incentivized a a weapons industry that is profiteering from war Um, it incentivizes pharmaceutical companies to have patents that keep low-income communities from getting uh medicines that could save lives Mm. um and at the same time you have pharmaceutical companies developing uh medicines for erectile dysfunction and male pattern baldness for high-income communities you know so there's all mm. kinds of negative and uh talk about efficiency 
the profit motive incentivizes companies to to use planned obsolescence, you know, to make our fast fashion um, that goes obsolete before it needs to, laptops and, and mobile phones that break down before they need to. That's all the profit motive. So it's highly inefficient, I would argue. Mm, I think you're right. And of course, we can come up with lots of examples, can't we, of businesses using addictive um, and not just addictions around tobacco, alcohol, gambling, yes. those obvious things, but, you know, addictions to drugs, addictions to the the fat, salt, sugar ratio in, in food um, yes. to get the dopamine hit. And of course, you know, addiction to scrolling on um, social media. So, yeah, lots of things that are definitely not good for our health and well-being. Indeed. And just coming back to the circular economy, have you... Are there some good examples of circular businesses that are succeeding with a not-for-profit model? Yeah, so I think uh, one of the fun things about connecting these ideas of the not-for-profit economy and the circular economy is that a lot of... uh, more traditionally circular economy companies are not for profit. So if you think about the secondhand markets, um, you know, most charity shops are not for profit. And so they're doing a lot of the second and traditionally have been doing a lot of the secondhand um, reselling of clothes and furniture and all of that. Um, and they often, you know, combine that with a worker integration sort of model. So they're doing both uh, circular economy stuff and helping people get employed meaningfully. So there's a lot of interesting stuff in secondhand markets, but also increasingly in recycling and waste sorting. We're seeing not-for-profit companies doing a lot of interesting stuff there. Um, Then if you think about, you know, keeping um, materials in circulation in the first place, so sort of the reusing and sharing part, most car sharing schemes are not for profit. Um, a lot of bike hiring schemes are not for profit. Uh, companies that refurbish um, and give or sell waste, sort of like food waste. Or um, I read this interesting example yesterday about a company in the US that um, takes all of the waste soap and cosmetics from hotels. You know, you go and you stay in a hotel and you use the, the little bar of soap once. And what happens? Well, traditionally it gets thrown away, but this company is actually working with hotels, taking all of that waste soap and shampoos, um, cleaning it up and then uh, refurbishing it, or I don't want to say repackaging it because they basically make new soap bars from it. Yeah, so kind of reformulating it. Reformulating it. And then they uh, sell it on and and give a lot of it away to low-income communities around the world. So, and that's a not-for-profit. So there's a lot of exciting and interesting things happening in the not-for-profit circular economy. Mm. And I guess thinking about the way that, just going back to innovation again, thinking about the way that innovation works and some of Clayton Christensen's teachings is that, you know, constraints drive innovation. So one of those constraints could be to do this in a way that benefits wider society, not just the customers that you're selling to, but how can you create a business that is profitable in terms of having um, money to reinvest in the business, um, mm-hmm. you know, to work out how to reformulate the, the the next type of soap or whatever but that has at its heart doing something that's better for people and planet. And that can be a constraint driving more creativity around 
the business model and the you know the products the services and so on absolutely um, so yeah. i think that can that can be a really interesting way to to set out on that path and kind of set yourself that challenge with with those extra constraints absolutely. so um if businesses have, have listened to this whether they're you know large businesses small businesses people wanting to get started with something how would you encourage them to to get started with this and, and to begin that journey yeah i would say um well the, the first thing businesses can do is is really think about uh embedding a social benefit purpose as the core of you know their reason for existing as a business is why do we exist you know embed a social benefit purpose and start to to transition to seeing money and profit only as a means to serve that core purpose um, and i think there's all kinds of benefits that come with that beyond just being a more sustainable business model but you you know, employees and um, CEOs will get more of a sense of purpose from their everyday work as well if they know that they're working to benefit a larger community. Um, and I would encourage them, you know, move all the way in the not-for-profit direction. So that can uh, be done either by, you know, having a not-for-profit foundation take over as the sole owner of a for-profit company then it's not for profit basically overnight or just shutting down your for profit one day, opening it up as a not for profit the next day is just changing the legal structure. Or if you really um, like your legal structure based on where you are, you can write your social benefit mission into your charter in a legally binding way. So put it in your incorporation documents so that it's really legally binding as well as a non-distribution cap. So or a non-distribution constraint so that you know all, all of the profit will go back into that social benefit mission rather than enriching private owners and investors. And I think you know a, a lot of businesses are already moving in this direction in response to the crises and the demands of our times. Um, so it's sort of a common sense thing. I'm, I'm happy to see it becoming more and more common sense for more people and businesses. Yeah, that's interesting. And I guess that, you know, that could be a really useful part of the toolkit to help those bigger businesses understand what are the various steps on the journey that I need to make, um, you know, that makes it acceptable and returns some value back to those shareholder owners, um, because otherwise they're they're just going to block it, I, I would have thought. So, um, yeah. that, that's... Also, if I can just quickly touch on this idea of value, because um, I think that's at the core of what we're talking about as well. And I think that that's part of the shift we, we are seeing and that we need to see more of is a shift in understanding value and what kinds of value we expect from the economy and businesses. And right so far with the for-profit economy, it's really focused on financial value. Everything is measured, success is measured in financial value, returns are measured in financial value. But we're moving into a space where um, success is increasingly measured in social and environmental value. And then, you know, likewise, returns on investment. We're talking about, you know, increasingly social returns on investment and even environmental returns on investment, which are not financial. You know, just the fact that I invest in a company and it helps alleviate um nutritional deficiencies in, in a community, for instance, that's a social return on my investment. And it makes me feel good as an investor. It's, it doesn't make me feel sad that I didn't make money from that because now kids in this community have better things to eat. Mm. So I think there's this mind shift happening and it's a very necessary mind shift for sustainability. 
Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I've been trying to come up with some uh, sort of frameworks for helping people think about those different aspects of value. Mm. Um, yeah, Paul Hawken came up with a sort of list of, of ways that you could decide whether you were a regenerative business or not. You know, are you, are you, um, I'm probably going to misquote him, but one of them was, you know, are you creating meaningful work or destroying livelihoods? Um, mm. That kind of thing. So, and, and just coming back to the circular economy, um, is there a favourite circular economy example that you'd like to, like to share? I know you talked about the soap company. Um, maybe, maybe you have another one that you, that you like. Yeah, there, there are so many, but there is one from my, um, my home state in the US, Colorado, um, called Blue Star Recyclers. And they're one of these models that combines recycling and circular economy with uh, worker integration. So they do um, recycling and waste sorting of electronics when people, you know, or companies are done using their computers, the computers aren't working anymore or whatever. They can call Blue Star and they'll come pick up your electronics and then go and recycle and sort them. And um, I think it's 85% of their staff are people with autism or other disabilities. And so, you know, it's sort of doing this so much beautiful work in in terms of preventing harmful waste from going to you know to places like Africa or China um and at the same time recycling those parts so that they can be reused and providing meaningful employment for people who might really struggle otherwise to find meaningful employment so I think it's just sort of like one of these examples of a win-win-win yeah that sounds great and Jennifer if you could wave a magic wand and change one one thing to help create a better world overnight what what would that be yeah i have to point out first that this is a dangerous question because anything that i say will make me sound like an authoritarian (laughs) um but let's say in this magical world if i could change one thing it would be actually the underlying narrative of of our economy i you know this narrative of the profit motive drives innovation and efficiency this thing that we've has been thoroughly debunked um with evidence but we still really believe in so if i could do something i would change that belief to you know go from we have to have an economy driven by profit and growth to we have to have an economy um, that seeks to to solve social problems and provide for social and environmental needs Mm, I like that phrase. That's 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 a nice, neat way to sum it up. Thank you. And lastly, Jennifer, how can people find out more and get in touch with you? Yeah, so you can go to my website, which is www.relationshiptoprofit.net. And I have to point out that there are some hyphens in there. So it's relationship hyphen T-O, so two, hyphen profit.net. And you can find um, under the Learn More all of the different things I've written and some interviews and uh, hopefully lots of interesting resources that can help help you understand these ideas better. Great stuff. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So, Jennifer, thank you very much for sharing um, just a little bit of all the great stuff you've been doing over the last few years. And I think there are some really resonant themes in there. I think you're right that more and more people 
are questioning the current myths um, that have been debunked by leading thinkers, but are not those those um, you know that those debunking stories are not getting the airtime that they deserve, and they're mm-hmm. still being squashed by all the millions being poured into disinformation campaigns. Thank you very much, and um, look forward to seeing more of your your writing and your work in the future. Thank you so much, Catherine. This was a really fun discussion. What did I take away from that? It seems that profit in itself isn't the problem. It's what happens to the profits. Are they being used to create benefits for society and communities, or are they used to enrich the wealth of the board and the business owners, which is often the shareholders? Jennifer calls this wealth-enriching model the profit economy. Not-for-profit essentially means having a purpose that focuses on making a better world and reinvesting the profits to help further that purpose instead of taking the profit out of the business. The transition from incorporated companies and PLCs to not-for-profit companies seems complex, though I guess there are ways to do this through gradual changes, such as by transferring parts of the business to employee ownership or member cooperative models. I was interested to hear about Jennifer's example of BRAC, that's spelt B-A-R-C, in Bangladesh, offering healthcare and education to rural communities, including a dairy, a bank and retail shops. I've put a link in the show notes and I'm looking out for more businesses and social enterprises adopting these models. I mentioned the concept of scaling out rather than scaling up, which Ken Webster and Craig Johnson talk about in their latest book, ABC plus D, which focuses on regenerative food economies. I've included a link to that in the show notes and to a couple of Jennifer's articles, including the one I mentioned for the Circular Conversation platform. Here at Rethink, I have at last sent out a newsletter and my apologies for getting so bogged down in the book that I'd let those slip. You can sign up on the website if you'd like to receive those circular insights. And soon I'll be including news of where the book is up to and how you could get involved as a beta reader. So that's it for this episode of the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you to our guest this week, Jennifer Hinton, for sharing a little bit of her work on business models that are better for people and our planet. And thank you for listening. Thanks to Emanuele. Di Francesco of Circular Conversations, and to Azra Sayeda, a friend of the podcast, for making this episode possible. You can find out more and follow Jennifer Hinton on social media and find all the links we mentioned in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com. I believe we can all help make the circular economy happen through the choices we make at work and in our everyday lives. Buying pre-used, keeping what we have for longer, repairing it, and making sure it has another life. Those choices send strong signals to companies and governments, making it clear we all want a better, circular and regenerative future. We can all help spread the word too. Talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. Email a screenshot of your review to podcast at rethinkglobal.info and we'll give you a shout out on the show. 
We've made it easier for you to find episodes on the key circular economy strategies, or for a market sector, or specific countries. Check out our interactive podcast index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at circulareconomypodcast.com, and every episode includes an interview transcript. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one and two, or buy a copy of my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business. It takes you through the concepts and practicalities, with hundreds of real examples from all around the world. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you succeed with circular. You can find information on our talks, workshops, coaching and advice, and circular economy resources at rethinkglobal.info or connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn.